right, everybody. Good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here. Um, we are a, uh, I talk about this a lot, but um, we're a group of people who, um, like everybody, um, had this idea in our head at some point that, that we could be in charge and that we knew what was best. And, and at some point prove that horribly wrong um, and we wake up one day and we go you know what something's seriously missing I'm missing something in my life and I have this odd sense that what I'm missing is spiritual and so people stumble into a place like this I know I did one day and and you stumble into a place like this and you go maybe just maybe maybe the answer is in Jesus and if I learn enough about Jesus, maybe I'll figure this out. I can make an intelligent decision. I can just sort of just make a decision and, and decide what I want to do. So we begin to try to learn about Jesus. We, we think we study the text. We, we try to understand. And that what happens is we think we're going to come to a decision. We're going to do it with our brain, but our heart starts to connect with the heart of our Father. And that part in us that's missing begins to reconnect. And we don't know exactly how it happens, but we, we start communicating with our Creator. And through the process, we change. And so every week we come back and we just hope that somehow we will be able to continue that journey. And the more we surrender, the more we change. Uh, and the more we change, the more we realize we're not the ones changing. We're not doing it. It's happening to us. And so most of us... Um, have moments where we just realize that something supernatural is not not only happening around us, but actually through us. And so we come and we worship and we thank God because we're not the person we used to be. Now, now we are in a book uh, called Revelation. And uh, the, okay, we're in week 23. Um, we've been talking about this book for quite a while. Uh, but it tells us our future, so it's worthwhile to slow down and, and sort of see what's going to happen in the future. And so at this point, we're in the middle of what's called the seven years of tribulation. We're, um, we're between the trumpet and bowl judgments. We're at the midpoint of tribulation. Now, one of the things that's going to happen is from the midpoint on, the last three and a half years, things amp up very quickly. We're moving into a time that's the worst that's ever been or ever will be. Now, let me remind you of what's going on on earth at this point. There's been three and a half years of peace in the Middle East. The Antichrist has negotiated a peace settlement that allows the Jews to rebuild their temple and begin sacrifices again. One religion has been established worldwide. It's called humanism. It's the worship of the human, the mind. There's a Pope-like person that's been encouraging people to worship the Antichrist. The Antichrist has not announced himself as Antichrist. He's just a world leader who was just sort of pushed up on the throne. And, and what happens is people start following him. And he's very um, likable. He's very uh, charismatic. He pulls people to him. The Jewish people are beginning to think he's their Messiah. He's established a one-world government, a one-world economy. He's consolidated and confiscated the armies of the world. He's encouraged people to worship themselves and celebrate human accomplishment. Thus far, the Antichrist has been presented by Satan as humble, benevolent, kind, a peacemaker. He's charismatic. He's charming. 
He doesn't force people to follow him. They, they willingly do. They, they lay down their armies for him. He, he's so much of a just humble world leader, they can't believe the world's been blessed with such an individual. At this point, the Jews who've not surrendered to Jesus begin to think he's their Messiah. He's a world leader who brings peace. He has authority over the world. He rebuilds their temple. He rebuilds the temple practices. And for the majority of the world, everything's pretty good. Well, I mean, the last three and a half years have been tough. They've had these different seals and bowl judgments that have been poured out. And, and it seems like the world's been experiencing famine and death and disease. And some seem supernatural. But the Antichrist has done well helping everybody through the tough times. Hmm. Midpoint of the tribulation. The earth is trying to understand recent events increasingly expanding the power of the Antichrist, and John has us still looking up. We're, we're in this sort of interlude before the final bold judgments when the really, the great tribulation begins to hit, and he wants us to understand some things before we go further in the story. We learn there would be signs, you know, the scriptures say great signs in the heavens during the end, and John shares with us now events that are going to happen in heaven. John takes us to a vision of a war that breaks out in heaven. The midpoint of the tribulation, God will turn the tide against Satan, first in heaven, then on earth. A battle will take place that denies Satan's access to heaven. Satan takes his fight to the remaining believers, most of whom are a Jewish remnant. In this passage, John is going to see a great war between Michael, the, who's leading the angels of God, and Satan, the dragon, and his fallen angels that will take place during end times. Satan, in his great pride and delusion, believes that he can be like God. This will be his final rebellion in heaven. It'll be a cosmic mismatch. The dragon and his demons will lose the battle, and they'll be thrown out of heaven forevermore. The time is called the Great Tribulation, an ultimate showdown be between remaining believing Jews and Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Note the time stamp, now. Now the time has happened. Now the war arose in heaven. Midpoint of the tribulation, it's happening. Between the seventh trumpet and the first bowl judgment, John tells us this interlude, this interruption starts right now. And your first thought may be, Satan's in heaven? What? Satan is in heaven? Three and a half years into the midpoint of the tribulation, and Satan still is in heaven. It troubles us to think about that because we, we have this idea that God can allow nothing unholy in his presence. But the Bible clearly says that while Satan appears on earth and describes him as the prince of power of the air, it also says Satan has access to heaven where he accuses God's people before the throne. And you may be thinking, I thought he was defeated at the cross. Yet here we are at end times, and Satan is in heaven. That, that means he's there right now. Right now. How can heaven be heaven if Satan is there? Great point. Why does Satan have access to heaven? 
Well, let's remind ourselves about Satan. He was originally one of God's holy angels, but he rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven. That's the first stage of his judgment. Satan's kingdom was vanquished at the cross. Eventually, he'll be bound in an abyss for a thousand years and then cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Until his final judgment, he's considered the prince of the world, but he still has limited access to heavenly realm. In Job 1.6, Satan, Satan stands in the presence of God. In 2 Chronicles 18.18, 18, it involves a lying spirit. And since God is holy and absolutely without sin, and since he won't even look on evil, how can Satan be in heaven? Well, the answer involves God's sovereign restraint of sin. In Job 1, Satan stood before God to give an account of himself. God initiated the meeting, led the proceedings, and, reminded in, and remained in absolute control. The result was that Satan's power was limited and God is glorified. Some other facts to note. Satan does not have open access to God's presence. Scriptures tell us he only goes there when he's summoned by God. The visits are temporary. His time before the throne is limited. In no way is the purity of heaven tainted by the brief God-ordained presence of a sinful being who's quarantined, as it were, by God's power. Satan's access is only granted to the final judgment. After the judgment, God creates a new heaven and a new earth, wipes away all tears from all eyes, reveals new Jerusalem, and promises the complete absence of sin. Satan is on his way out. We can say that God cannot allow sin in heaven. We simply mean that God cannot allow human beings who are still in their sin to live in his presence. But it is possible for God to command a sinful being to stand temporarily in his presence in order to commission him to exact an account from him or to judge him without compromising God's holiness. God's holiness will eventually consume all sin. But until that day, his holiness regulates sin and that means Satan, or on certain occasions, can be summoned before the Creator to give an account of his actions. You see, on earth, Satan is a liar and a deceiver. In Genesis, he visits the Garden of Eden and he tempts Eve. He tempted Jesus in the wilderness when Jesus began his ministry. In heaven, we're told his role is accuser. You see, the way Satan works is he tempts you. And he tempts you and he tempts you until you make the fall. And then he turns and he accuses you and he goes to the altar and to the throne in heaven and he continues to accuse you. He accuses Job of obeying God only because God has blessed him richly. Satan says that if Job was put to the test, he'd turn from God and forsake his life. He accuses Joshua, the high priest. Zechariah 3.1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and st Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan is relentless in his accusations. He accuses God's children continuously. He hates God and he hates all that God is, which means he hates God's mercy and God's forgiveness that has been extended to humanity. He stands before God in a, an attempt somehow to lessen God or diminish his mercy. Fortunately, his accusations fall on deaf ears. Romans 8, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. 
Salvation belongs to our Lord, and Satan can't change that. God is greater than our accuser. Romans 8, 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Picture that for a minute. Satan is there accusing you, accusing, 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 and Jesus is interceding. It's just, it's amazing picture when you think about it. And Satan never gives up. He's a lawyer that never wins. Those who believe have Satan interceding for them. Sadly, those who don't, I mean, have Jesus interceding for them. Sadly, those who don't, don't. As Paul says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Satan tries to remind believers of their sin and their unworthiness in God's family and tries to put doubt in their hearts and mind about their salvation. He he wants us to forget how much God loves us and how faithful he is. Satan says, look at your sinfulness. God says, look to Jesus. Note who started this war in heaven. Dragon and his angels fought back. Michael, under God's direction, initiated this battle. It's time for Satan to leave. It's time. He he no longer has access to heaven. God has determined it's time for him to leave. This isn't some rebellion that was put down. God in his sovereignty said, enough, I'm tired of you. Get out of here. No more accusing Satan. You are dismissed. He's defeated. Not a lot of details here, but it's not that important. God's already told us he has victory over him. Note that it says there was no longer a place for him in heaven. God is putting in motion his return of Christ. There's no longer court sessions in heaven. What's been decided has been decided. The arguments and debates are over. The accusations and defenses have concluded. All final arguments have been made. The accuser is dismissed. It's time for judgment. God is orchestrating, just as he's done every event in human history, he's setting the world up for what's known as the Great Tribulation. The prophets spoke of it. Look at Daniel, Daniel 12, 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who's in charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Verse 7, and I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, time, and half a times. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. Daniel says, this will happen, and then there'll be a time, time, and half a time, three and a half years until everything is completed. This battle in heaven is a spiritual battle. Michael and his archangels outnumber Satan two to one. But these are the spiritual forces in heavenly places that Paul spoke about. You see, right now, there are spiritual forces in heavenly places. Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
You see, we have a battle. We are warriors of Christ, and we are fighting a spiritual battle against the spiritual forces that are evil in heavenly places. Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Notice the various titles for this person, dragon, serpent of old, devil, Satan, the one who deceives the world. He's vicious, he's an accuser, he's an adversary, he's a deceiver. The title devil comes from the Greek diablos, which means defaming or slandering. He's the master accuser of believers. The Bible describes four different falls of Satan, each one taking him further and further away from the throne of God. First, he falls from glorified to profane. This fall occurred before man was ever created. Satan was God's top angel. He was the pride of, of, of God. And because of his pride, he ended up being judged and dismissed. Ezekiel 28, 14, you were an anointed, guarded cherubim. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Listen to the disappointment in God's voice. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroy you, O guarding cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Jesus told his disciples that he's been present from the very beginning to the earth, a phrase that is a loss of dignity and power. Think about how Satan has fallen from an anointed angel in heaven full of power and authority to now being on earth. And now earth is going to be his scene of future operations against God, and he's going to wrestle with God until the end. Jesus said, I, I saw this happen. That day when, when we kicked him out of heaven, when we kicked him down to earth, I saw it happen. He said to them in Luke 8, 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Next fall is from having access to heaven to being restricted to earth, what we're seeing right now in Revelation 12. The great dragon was thrown down, thrown down to earth. Now notice he keeps moving down. The third time he's thrown down is from the earth to bondage in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, which we'll see in Revelation 20. That occurs immediately after Jesus returns. Revelation 20, verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a while. The fourth fall of Satan comes from that pit to the lake of fire. It's his final fall. We'll see that in Revelation 20 as well. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Four falls, each one further and further, from the highest to the very lowest. He reaches the ultimate bottom. Cast out of heaven, down to earth. 
he and all of his demons now are on earth. They're cornered. They're like a cornered animal. His fight for souls is over. It's time to just kill flesh. He's lost the battle for souls. Souls that are going to be saved are saved. His angels are cast out with him. These angels are demonic beings, a third of the stars of heaven described in Revelation 12. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she might bore her child, he might devour it. Two-thirds of the angels remain faithful to God. It's comforting, I think, to know. Revelation 12, 10. And a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. He says, I heard a loud voice. Note again the timestamp. Now, also the location. This loud voice is in heaven. Note the list of things that have come. Salvation, power, kingdom, authority of Christ. If you think about it, those are the four things that we're missing on the earth today. Salvation, power, God's kingdom, and the authority of Christ. The heavenly inhabitants are celebrating confirmation of God's supremacy, which has been vindicated by the defeat and the expulsion of Satan from heaven. Can you imagine how tired they were of hearing Satan accuse people? Now he's been cast to earth. We hear a loud voice. We're not told where this voice comes from. It could be some representative. It could be part of redeemed humanity. It's not an angel because the voice speaks of the accuser of our brothers. That's interesting. The voice in heaven considers Satan on earth attacking their brothers. It's another reason why I believe in a pre-trib rapture. I believe these are people who've been raptured. I think it's probably the elders of the church. Someone calls out and speaks of the accuser of my brothers. God or an angel does not consider mankind his brother. The accuser, the one who accuses them day and night before our God has been thrown down. You see, it's in this verse that we learn Satan does not just periodically go to heaven to accuse us. He's there day and night, all the time, never ceasing until God finally said, enough. God's court for believers is unique. Satan accusing day and night, the sentence has already been revealed and carried out. Whatever punishment God determined for your sins, Jesus has already paid for you. Imagine you were found guilty of stealing something and your sentence was to repay a million dollars or pay with your life. Okay? So you've stolen something. They tell you you got two choices. Pay a million dollars or pay with your life. A friend steps up and says, I got this debt covered. The debt's been paid. Justice met, issue over and solved. We're guilty, but our punishment's been covered and is complete. Now imagine that every day the prosecutor comes back to court and keeps accusing you. His accusations fall on deaf ears because the verdict's been guilty and the price has already been paid. But he keeps showing up every day to keep accusing you of what you've done. Here's the odd part. We agree with Satan. 
We know we're guilty of our sins. We know we should be getting punished. We know that his accusations against us are probably right. We do have a sinful flesh. We do have imperfect hearts. We do have selfish motives. We are sinners who need a savior. That's our problem. Satan, we agree, we're a group of messed up people. But we've met an incredible God. We deserve death and we know it. Keep accusing, we agree. That's what makes it so amazing, this grace. We've confessed it. We don't deserve Jesus. We know that. We know it as well as Satan does. But here's what we know and believe that Satan hates. We're a group of messed up people who are surrendered to Jesus Christ. And because of that faith, we know this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet day and night, Satan keeps trying. And finally, in the midpoint of tribulation, God says, enough. Enough. And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Huh. Now we're told how Satan's going to be defeated. They have conquered them. That's interesting. The voice did not say we. The one speaking here knows that someone else is conquering Satan. We know that Satan's conquered only by God and that he may do so through his angels, through himself as Christ, or through his believers. So who is it? Who's doing the conquering? Well, John tells us that Satan is going to be conquered through two actions. Don't miss this. Two actions are going to kill Satan. The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. Those are the two things he cannot overcome. The blood. The blood overcomes Satan's accusations. Those accusations mean nothing against us because Jesus has already paid the penalty. We may actually be worse than what Satan is portraying, but it doesn't matter. We've been saved by the righteous work of Jesus on the cross. It's important to pause here, I think, and talk about what it means by the blood of Christ. We throw that term around a lot. When we speak of being saved by the blood or covered in the blood, it's not the literal blood of Jesus that we're talking about. We're not actually covered by his blood. His blood was poured out on Calvary. If we somehow found some of Jesus' blood, it's not magical. It's not going to save us. If his blood literally saves us, then the Roman executioners who were covered in it would have been saved. What we're actually talking about is that the blood of the Lamb is the ground or reason of victory. It's the instrument of victory. The blood speaks to us of the real physical death of Jesus in our place on our behalf. When we talk about being covered by the blood of the Lamb, we're talking about the fact that Jesus took our place and we're coming under that. He literally bore our judgment and poured out his blood for that. 
That's what saves us. The blood emphasizes the real death and suffering of Jesus. Not only did he suffer, he died. The blood of the lamb emphasizes his substitutionary work for us. He became the Passover lamb who died as a substitute for all of us. The precious blood of Jesus is not meant for us to merely admire and exhibit. We must not be content to just talk about it, sing about it, and do nothing with it. But we're to use it against Satan and his lies. Confronting Satan with what happened on the cross is what silences him. No matter what he accuses you of, Jesus comes back with, yeah, but I paid that. Why do you keep coming back? And when you come tomorrow, I'll give you the same answer. Why are you coming back? He knows he's defeated. His time is short, and soon the whole world's going to know it. That's what the blood of Jesus means. It means he died on the cross for us. He took our place. And that very truth, that moment in history, is what begins to destroy Satan's authority. To claim the blood of the Lamb is not to suggest a magical power. It means that you acknowledge you're falling under the sacrifice of Jesus. And you remember the price that was paid at the cross. It brings us victory. His victory is our victory. Every time we proclaim the blood of Christ, every time we talk of the cross, every time we share that moment in history with anybody, we are defeating Satan because he can't do a thing about it. It brings us victory because of the work of Jesus on the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It brings victory because it reminds us that the blood of the lamb, we can be assured that every lie Satan whispers to us is a true lie. And through Christ, we can overcome it. It brings victory because Jesus' death on the cross it reveals the true nature of sin. Satan wants to make sin pleasurable, but the cross reveals its bitterness. If Jesus died because of sin, men begin to see that sin must be a murderous thing, Spurgeon says. Therefore, we use the blood of the lamb in spiritual warfare. It's not Christian abracadabra. It's not like we walk around chanting the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and somehow that keeps Satan away like garlic is supposed to keep a vampire away. Rather, it's our understanding and apprehension and our focus. We know what happened on that day in history, and we know what it means. And every time we proclaim it, every time we claim it, we are telling Satan, don't deal with me. And don't deal with my brothers. Deal with the cross. He who's in me is greater than he who's in the world. So Satan's been conquered by the blood of the Lamb the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But there's a second weapon that we're told here that is used against him. The word of their testimony. Whose testimony? God's? Michael's? The angel's? No. This is the testimony of those who loved not their lives even unto death. This is the testimony of the martyrs the brothers and sisters who are on the earth being martyred. 
You see, the blood of the lamb is significant because it testifies to and who it testifies of. But the blood of Jesus and the testimony of his followers go hand in hand. The blood of the lamb would have been shed in vain without the testimony of believers. The testimony of believers would have been impossible without the blood of the lamb. The two go hand in hand. They valued not their life in this world, even to the extent of meeting death for the sake of giving their testimony. You see, martyrs aren't killed because they believe in Jesus. Martyrs are killed because they believe in Jesus, and because of that, they can't be quiet. Martyrs are killed because of testimony. Let me replace it. Martyrs are killed because of testimony. Their testimony is the life change that Christ has done in their life because of their faith for him. Satan can never overcome the power of the blood, and he can never overcome the power of the testimony of followers of Jesus. So we're not called to just be witnesses to what God has done in our lives. A lot of people fill church pews, and they just come, and they go, oh, yeah, he saved me. That's good. Yeah, I'm going to go back out in the world and keep my mouth shut. I'll be here next Sunday. We're supposed to testify. Every time you tell others what God has done for you and how you've changed because of the cross and the blood, you are literally participating in the defeat of Satan. You. You are here in a spiritual battle. You fight against spiritual powers. And it's your testimony, the word of life change that Satan cannot deal with. The testimony of those who love their word more than their life does not just include those who are martyred for the faith. It's every believer who has surrendered their will for God's and lived it out until their death. Knowing and remembering the work of God in their life protects them against Satan's deceptions. Loving not their life overcomes Satan's violence. You want to kill me? Kill me. I'm here to testify. You can't bring a threat against me, Satan, because I have the blood of the cross and I have the testimony. they believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain, how can Satan threaten them with anything? The Greek word for love here is agape, which speaks of self-sacrifice and decision-based love. It's each one of us get to choose. Will we love our lives to the death? Will our physical lives be the most important thing to us, or will we give that up in a heartbeat for Jesus? Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Heaven rejoices at the eviction of Satan, but heaven's gain is earth's loss. The voice says, you who dwell in them. Interesting. The voice says, you who dwell in them. That means there are some who are from heaven and now some others dwell there. Another reason I believe in a pre-trib rapture, I believe he's talking to us, the raptured saints. 
Satan's power is real and terrifying, but not because he's triumphant, but because he knows he's beaten and he has a short time. Why does this become the great tribulation? Satan is defeated. He's been kicked out of heaven and he's cornered. He's a cornered animal who can only attack at this point. He may have given up his fight against God and humanity, but he's depraved and he's insane. Satan still thinks he has a chance. Our rebellion against God makes even less sense than Satan's rebellion. We know the truth. Verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. Okay, note, Satan's not in charge of any of this. One moment he's in a spiritual war, the next moment he suddenly realizes he's been cast down to earth. Not just on earth, but expelled and thrown to earth. He lost the spiritual battle for the souls of believers. Now he's going to attack the only thing he can, their flesh. His time is short. He wants to kill as many followers of Jesus as he can. Satan is falling. His efforts to defeat God failed long ago. His efforts to defeat Jesus have now fallen, and now he turns his attack to the church, the followers of Jesus on earth. So who is the woman? The woman we discussed last week is the nation of Israel. In Hebrew writings, it's the nation of Israel who gives birth to the Messiah, the male child. In this case, the nation of Israel are enemies of Satan, those who believe in Jesus. He's talking about the Messianic Jews, the Jewish people who during the first three and a half years of the tribulation surrender to Jesus. Why does Satan attack Jews? This is a question for all of history, not just the tribulation. The reason is because the time of Abraham, Israel holds a critical role in God's plan of redemption. Israel's bringing forth the Messiah and the Redeemer. And every time, remember, when we say God's plan of redemption, what we're really saying is Satan's destruction. If Satan succeeds in destroying the Jewish people, then he believes that somehow he can thwart plans for an eternal Messiah. The, the persecution of Israel is part of the satanic program to thwart and hinder the word of God. Israel's hating, hated by Satan not because of any of its own characteristics, but because they were chosen by God. He knows the scriptures. Don't ever forget that. Satan knows the scriptures. He just doesn't believe them. A Jewish remnant of followers of Jesus will welcome him back to Jerusalem on his final return to earth. Matthew 23, 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Palm Sunday, they sang messianic psalms, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The second time, they will really mean it. The Jewish people will sing the truth that they now have realized. So since Adam and Eve has targeted the people of God and eventually the Jews, now at the midpoint of tribulation, a more threatening group arises. Jewish believers who can testify against Satan. Think about the irony here. Satan is the accuser in heaven, accusing the saints, but now he's on earth, and the testimonies of the saints is what's destroying him. Satan has always attacked the Jewish people, but there's a group of Jews that he hates more than any, those who are able to testify about what the blood of the cross did for them. That, he knows, will destroy him. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle. 
so that she might fly from the serpent to the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for time, time, and half a time. Eagle's wings are an emblem found in the Exodus deliverance, another way of connecting these people with Israel. Just as the Jewish remnant or the Jewish people were rescued from Israel, so will this Jewish remnant be rescued on Jesus' return. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He's going to do it again. The two wings may typify the Old and New Testament by which the authority of the church convicts, but honestly, we don't know what those two wings mean. Many have said the two wings of a great eagle do not describe or do describe a military transport plane. Who knows? All I know is God's going to bring them back and rescue them. There's another reference to three and a half years. This dramatic persecution of Israel takes place during three and a half years, the 70th week of Daniel chapter 9. Time, times, and half a time. Other places in the Bible it's described as 42 months, 1,260 days, or three and a half years, but it's always the same. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Jesus specifically warned of this moment, exact moment in history in the future. Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in the house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to his cloak. Let me pause for a minute and tell you what's happening. The Antichrist has gone into the Holy of Holies. He has declared himself as God. He's forcing people to either bow down and worship him and acknowledge him as God and take his mark or be slaughtered, beheaded most likely. That's where we're at. The abomination of desolation. Someone who would go in to the Holy of Holies and declare themselves as God. The ultimate disgrace. The ultimate blasphemy. Daniel talked about it thousands of years ago. And he says, when you see that happen, go. Get out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flat may not be in winter on the Sabbath. For there will be, here it is, great tribulation, such as never been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, the Jewish remnant, those days will be cut short. Notice in this verse, Jesus speaks in very Jewish terms. Your flat may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Don't go to your housetop. The passage reveals the fury that's about to be unleashed, and Jesus tells them to flee. This is a moment when Satan specifically tries to destroy Jewish believers in Christ. Notice the serpent tries to sweep her away with a flood. Isaiah said this would happen. Isaiah 59, 19, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up the standard against him. You see, the incredible thing that we've talked about is the story of Revelation has been told in the Old Testament. 
Very little new is in the, the story. It's all, it's all been revealed before. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony. There it is again. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony. And he stood on the sand of the sea. You see, Satan continues to fall. He couldn't beat God. He couldn't beat Jesus. He couldn't beat the Jewish messianic family. Now he attacks individuals, those offsprings of their testimony, those who tell the truth. Likely he's talking here about Gentile believers who are still left on earth. They come to faith during the tribulation. The group of new believers becomes targeted focus during the last three and a half years. Everyone's forced to declare their loyalty. Everyone who doesn't will be martyred. They don't take the mark of the beast. Having failed to prevent the mission of the Jesus, having been foiled in his attempts to overcome the church of God, Satan begins to attack the seed of the woman, the individual believer. Our testimony is crucial. These believers are targeted because they can't shut up. They can't fake it. They can't take a mark that doesn't respond to their Lord. They can't bow down and worship a false god. They're not, they'd rather die than do that. They're not going to do it. It's their testimony that breaks down Satan. Sadly, though, many churches are full of witnesses who claim to have been changed by Jesus who never testify. It's incredible. Our lives have been completely changed. We are victorious, and almost all, all churches agree, we're headed to the end times. It's our testimony that defeats Satan. Yet everybody goes, well, I understand what Jesus did for me. And they act like frozen chosen behind stained glass. And as long as I stay in my little world and I don't get interrupted or bothered by the outside world and how horrible it is, I'll just wait till Jesus comes back. That's not the message. You're a warrior in a battle. Your testimony is your power. Amen. Let me just give you a, a, something, a number. Let me just share this with you. The focus of Remnant as a church when we first started Remnant was... We're going to make disciples of Christ. That's our goal. Now, you may not, you may probably notice, I preach to believers. Most of the time, my sermons are aimed at people who already believe. There are many churches who preach to seekers, praise God. But the mission of this church, God has revealed to us, is to raise disciples. Let me share with you why that's so powerful. If you can get six new people here every week, let's say five to make the math easier. Okay, so out of ours, we get five people here every week. Okay, in one year, we'll reach about 250 people with the message. Not bad, I guess. But pastors are told to preach the word in season and out of season and to equip the saints for ministry. If you share the gospel with one person every week, just one, you just tell one person why you have the hope and faith that you have in Jesus Christ, we together will reach 4,000 people in a year. 
Why do we spend so much time making sure you understand the scriptures, making sure that you understand what's going on in the world and why the urgency is there? Because we're trying to help you grow in Christ because there's nothing more valuable for somebody who's lost than to see somebody who knows Jesus walk in the door and that light comes into their life. And so we are sent out in the world. You are a missionary going out into Sarasota. I say this a lot. I wish we'd all get on an airplane, fly around for about eight hours, come back and land in Sarasota and convince ourselves we're missionaries. You have an incredible testimony but every time you decide to keep your mouth shut when you know somebody could benefit from that testimony because you're too afraid, Satan wins. Two things destroy Satan. The blood of the cross, the testimony of believers who won't shut up. Being a witness of Christ helps nobody unless you testify to it. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he still had to explain the truth. You can't live a perfect life and just think people around you are suddenly going to understand the cross. They won't. It's got to be shared. Think about this. If you're a follower of Christ, somebody came to you with a message. Think about how many times that message was faithfully handed down from the time Jesus ascended on the Mount of Olives till it finally got to you. Every person being faithful. Every person sharing the gospel. Every person being willing to testify and not just work on being saved. We have a responsibility as believers to share the reason why we have the hope that we have. When was the last time you told your story to somebody who really needed it? It's like Wolf Brand Chili. That's too long. We should be doing this every day. One a week? We should be sharing what every day with people we see. I don't care what they think. Satan needs to go down. What are we afraid of? There's no condemnation. He who's in the world is greater. Than, we say it all the time. Do we believe it? We sing songs about it. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to go into someone's life and share with them the reason why we have the hope that we have. They can reject it. What's unacceptable is if we don't share it. The blood of Jesus, the testimony of the saints is what conquers Satan. That's why he hates communion. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There it is. Covenant of the blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember what happened on the cross. Remember the blood that was poured out. Remember the testimony. Remember the power of the blood of Jesus. But look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you testify to the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we take communion, we are telling Satan, this is the blood that saved me, this is the body that saved me, and I'm here to testify about it, so deal with it, you loser. 
Jesus says, you remember what happened. I've defeated him. You call him, you claim him defeated in your life. And that's what we're going to do as we celebrate communion. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are victorious. Forgive us, God, when we don't share the message. Forgive us when we let whatever fear Satan throws up at us stop us from sharing the truth with our friends and our family and our coworkers and people we meet on the street and people that we just run into. God, help us to commit to claiming the blood of the cross and also to testify to it, to be willing to give up and lose whatever it takes to save some who will listen. God, I pray that when we get to heaven, we don't see people who we missed the opportunity to share the gospel with. God, help us to be faithful. As we take communion today, examine our hearts. If we're deep in some kind of unrepentant sin, then just sit down and ask God why you can't seem to agree with him. But don't take communion. If you're a follower of Christ and you spend some time reflecting and, and you're willing to testify, then it's our time to share communion. So God, we thank you for the price that was paid. We thank you that each of us have a different testimony of what you've done in our lives. Testimonies as unique as our DNA, orchestrated by you. And you're going to use us to penetrate hearts of people who need to hear our testimony. We love you. We thank you. Holy Spirit, move our hearts as we proclaim your death until you return. And we ask it in Jesus' name.